Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Our text for our sermon is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Therefore, beyond this, brothers, just as you received instruction from us about how you are to walk so as to please God, as indeed you are doing, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you do so even more. To be sure, you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Indeed, this is God's will, that you be sanctified, namely that you keep yourselves away from sexual immorality. He wants each of you to learn to obtain a wife for yourself in a way that is holy and honorable, not in lustful passion like the heathen who do not know God. No one is to overstep and take advantage of his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, just as we said previously and solemnly testified to it. For God did not call us for uncleanness, but in sanctification. Consequently, whoever rejects this is not rejecting a man, but the God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Concerning brotherly love, there is no need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God with the result that you love one another. In fact, you are doing so towards all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers, to do this even more and to make it your ambition to live a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands just as we instructed you. Do this so that you are conducting yourselves decently towards outsiders and are not lacking anything. This is the word of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when we were brought to faith, it's because the Holy Spirit gave birth to a new person in us who is engrafted to Christ, who wants to show God's love, both that God loves us and and have his love pouring out of our hearts. We have a sinful nature. We have a sinful nature that makes us forget things. We have a sinful nature that tends to want to have it its own way. And so today, as we work through our text, we will ask the question, how are we to live our new lives in a way that pleases God? And from here on out, as you're accustomed to, I'll be preaching on my translation of the Greek language that Paul wrote in, just to bring out some of the nuances. So Paul has been given the Thessalonians many instructions, and he kind of comes to the last bit of instructions, as he says in verse 1. Furthermore, brothers, we are asking and strongly encouraging you guys in the Lord Jesus that just as you guys personally received from us the how it's necessary that you guys conduct your lives in a way pleasing to God, just as you guys also are conducting your lives so that you keep on overflowing more and more in this. Indeed, you guys have perceived what instructions we gave to you guys through the Lord Jesus. A mouthful is said there. It says, when he and Silas and Timothy, when they came to Thessalonica, they gave them the word of God, right? And the instructions are all in there. Instructions to love the Lord and let the Lord's uh, love shine through. And you notice how he talks to them? He doesn't say, you know, you guys need to start doing this. He says they are doing it. These are Christians. They are living this life. They had received instructions on the how it's necessary to conduct their lives. Interestingly, the Greek word used for that is walk about, how we, how we walk about in our lives. That's a reminder for us. See, you were called to be a Christian in the life you live. Unless you were living, for example, as a prostitute or as a thief, God doesn't call you to be a Christian thief, for example. But he doesn't expect you to shave your head or renounce the world. He calls you to be a Christian in this world as you live in this world, whether it's repairing telephone cable, whether it's being a nurse, whether it's 
sweeping or mopping floors as a janitor. God calls us to be a Christian in that. But you'll notice he says you're doing this, but he turns around and he also says, uh, he says that you keep on overflowing more and more in this. Christians who are already what we call life of sanctification, it's shining through. There's definitely enough evidence to convict them of being loved by God and loving those who are loved by God. It's all there. He says, don't settle for good enough. Keep overflowing in it. Do it all the more. Now, this isn't a law that's supposed to rule over our heads like a taskmaster. That's what the law does. More, 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 cracking the whip. No, this is... We're never going to be satisfied. We're always going to say there's, there's more love I can show for God, right? But we've got to be careful that we understand that we're doing that correctly. And that's why he points them back to the instructions. The, the New Testament is being written as he writes these words. So for you and I who live in a time when we have the New Testament, that means that we're not happy to just say, well, I, I went to Bible study once. I went through catechism. I'm done, right? It's interesting when Luther writes his intro to the large catechism, he vents a little bit of frustration at the time. He says, people read my small catechism once and they think they've mastered it. They, were, they thought, good enough. And Luther's point was, he says, I'm the one who wrote it and I'm not done. I'm never done studying it. There's always wonderful new gems we come to in the Word of God and new applications. And Oh, how did I miss that before? Maybe we didn't. Maybe we'd just forgotten it. So how are we to live new lives in a way that pleases God? Never settle for good enough while sticking with what you have been taught because of the good news of salvation in Christ. Now I have to tell you, as we come to this, Paul is talking uh, through what my catechism students learn as law as a guide. There are three uses of the law. The main law is to show our sin, right? But then there's a motivation that the law gives, and that's called, the, my catechism kids learn that is law as a curb. And that's when the law says, do this or there'll be punishment. And what's the punishment? Hell. Well, that's been removed for you and I. We're believers. But then there's the last use law as a guide. We also call that life of sanctification, in which we say, Lord, you've poured your love into my heart. You've saved me. How can I thank you? God says, because I've saved you, that's the motivation. Now keep my law, right? And we call that law as a guide. We're not doing it because we have to in order to be saved. We're doing it because God has already saved us and his love is in our heart. Well, in verse three, the apostle Paul continues and he says, indeed, this is God's will, namely your sanctification, that you guys stay away from sexual impurity. I'm gonna stop there. Uh, we're going to come back to the sexual impurity thing here in a minute. But isn't it interesting? The word he uses for your sanctification, when it was used in classical Greek or even the Greek language of this time for pagan gods, it's when something was set aside to be used, consecrated in their temples or whatever. And we could use the same example with our true God. If you had donated in the time, for example, in the Exodus, if you had donated something to be used in the temple, maybe some bronze or some gold, and that ends up being set apart for God's purposes. Maybe it ended up as part of the, that candle stand. Maybe it ended up as part of the, the altar of incense or the table that the showbread was shown on or part of the altar for whole burnt offering. It was set apart for God's use, God's holy purposes. And that word reminds us, again, Paul is talking to Christians. He's actually complimenting them. When God gave them faith, the Holy Spirit did that by giving birth to a new person in their heart. 
And when that happened, they were set apart for God's holy purposes. So if you're a janitor, janitors glorify God. Somebody's got to clean things up, but they're a janitor who does so. They're not working for the paycheck anymore. They're working as a Christian to glorify God and show his love in the world. Now, Paul uses a specific example where we, uh, the world as a whole tends to struggle with letting God be glorified. And it was really bad in the Macedonian culture, which today is modern day Greece. And we have to admit in America, we're a pretty sexually driven culture anymore. So he goes straight to the, uh, uh, that area when he says that each of you stay away from sexual impurity. Literally, the Greek word used is the fornication, which would be fornication of any of all kind. And so he says that each of you has perceived to obtain his own spouse in holiness and honor, not in the sphere of passionate, overwhelming desire, just as even the pagans do, who have not perceived God. So knowledge here, and we usually just translate that as knowledge, but it's knowledge, they saw it. The apostle Paul, Tylus, uh, Timothy, uh, Silas, they had... They had explained this to them. So now they live this ever before their eyes. And Paul isn't saying if you're not getting married, you're not glorifying God. He's talking about one of the things that helps us stand up to this world's being so sexually driven. So he says that each of you obtain his own spouse in holiness and honor. Now, I'm not saying you can't find a Christian spouse in a bar. But, you know, there's a place where you're a hundred times more likely to find a Christian spouse in church. And so it is that when um, my, my wife and I first started dating and the first time she asked me, why do you love me? And I said, well, first and foremost, you go to church. I, I, somehow that didn't just woo her off her feet. And a few years later, we finally did get married. But truly, that was, we both will admit to you, some of my jesting aside, that was one of the first things that we noticed about each other, Right. And so it's not that we go off and, and, and find a spouse by the way the world does. In fact, he mentions that. Uh, he says there's a preposition there in the Greek in verse 5 is that where you've heard me say in the past, the fence in your backyard, if you have a fence, everything within that is your property and everything outside of that is none of your business. It's not your property. That's the preposition that's used there. So he says, not in this, not in these confines within this fence, within these boundaries, not in the sphere of passionate, overwhelming desire. An overwhelming desire. And one of the English words that covers that is lust, but lust only has to do with sexual desire, right? You know, but it, it's like if you don't feed a dog for a few days and you hold a raw steak out in front of it, that dog has got a desire for that, right? And if you look at Hollywood, we can see, yeah, lots of times people pick out spouses based purely on lust, just on eye candy. But there's other ways in which a passionate, overwhelming desire can make people pick out their spouse. And that we see in, in Hollywood movies when guys and gals meet and they have that puppy dog love. And so they love each other until that puppy dog love wears off. I love you until the first morning you have bad breath. I love you until you make bologna salad. I can't stand bologna salad. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I'm kidding about that. But, but truly, uh, overwhelming desire. Oftentimes in Hollywood movies, people get married for love. It's just an emotion. And, and you know, emotions change, don't they? A passionate, overwhelming desire. Now, I'm not talking about biblical love. That is a good reason to get married. When a marriage begins by saying, I'm committed to you, that's a whole other story, isn't it? That's not there with the pagan world at all, with the unbelieving world, not in our culture and most. 
So he mentions that, that this is what those who have not perceived God, they haven't seen God. They don't see God on the cross. They don't see God off the cross. So it doesn't even dawn on them that marriage is something that actually glorifies God. And again, for single people, you don't have to be married. But I've often heard people who aren't Christians say, every time I go to a church, all I ever hear is them screaming that you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage. And lots of times they get the impression that Christians think intercourse is always sinful. No, it actually glorifies God when it's done within the confines of marriage. And in that case, God blesses it as well. Paul is using the example in a very sexually driven culture of living God's purity while living in an impure world that's trying to just pour its filthiness upon us. So how do we live our new lives in a way that pleases God? We've already seen we never settle for good enough while sticking with what we have been taught and continue to learn in the word of God. But because of that, then, we show God's purity while living in an impure world. Verse 6 continues, Not overstepping nor taking advantage of his brother in the undertaking, in view of the fact that the Lord is an avenger in all these things, even as also we told you guys before and emphatically testified. Now the Greek word that I translate as the undertaking, literally you're reading along, not overstepping nor taking advantage of his brother in the matter. So if you read commentators, they're almost split right down the middle. Some are saying in the matter of obtaining a spouse. And others say this is in classical Greek in that, and it's a business uh, term, and he's going to start getting to, he's already transitioning to how we deal uh, in love for our, our neighbor. So who's right? I would say both are. Paul is quite capable of doing that. What Paul is talking about is not overstepping nor taking advantage of a brother or sister in Christ in anything we do, whether it's a spouse where, you know, if our neighbor, brother or sister is engaged, we're not going to steal that spouse from them if we're doing business with them or anything else. Let's admit it. It doesn't just have to be an exchange of money. But here's the one place where Paul uses that law as a curb for motivation. In the rest of the text, the motivation is always God's love as seen in Christ Christ crucified for us in, in the empty tomb. He says, in view of the fact that the Lord is an avenger in all these things, even as we also told you guys before, and emphatically testified. The unbelieving world has recently come to embrace a pagan concept called karma. And they say karma is a really tough thing. Before they embrace that, they used to just say, what comes around goes around. Now, God punished Christ on the cross for your and my sins. The punishment for sin is ultimately hell. But God does discipline us, doesn't he? And there are times, I've seen it with dear friends, where as Martin Luther said in in his large catechism on on the commandment, thou shalt not steal, God Luther said, God uses one knave to punish the other, one thief to punish the other. I had a friend who was pretty good at stealing things. And then one day somebody stole some stuff that were valuable to him. And he realized, wow, what a mess. If we're going to take advantage of our neighbor, Paul does warn us, you're not going to get away with it. God's justice will be satisfied. So there we have that law as a curb. So it's one of the things that we can use with our sinful nature. Our sinful nature is a stubborn guy, and sometimes the only thing that sinful nature can understand is a good beating, right? And so how are we to live our new lives in a way that pleases God? As Paul is pointing out here, by loving our neighbor with godly accountability. We stop and ask ourselves, would this glorify God or not? Holding out that accountability. 
Now in verses 7 and 8 we're told, For God did not call you on the basis of uncleanness, but in the sphere of sanctification. For that very reason, therefore, he who keeps on setting this aside is not setting aside man, but is setting God aside, who also gives his Holy Spirit to you guys. Uh, what is he saying there? Now I say we want to pay attention to the prepositions in the inspired Greek language of the New Testament. God did not call you upon uncleanliness. In fact, that was the problem. We couldn't be saved in our uncleanliness. So God lived the life perfectly for us and his blood washes away our uncleanliness. So he didn't call us to wallow in this world's filth, did he? No, instead we're told, but in the sphere of, again, only in this, of sanctification, again, of being set apart for God's holy purposes. That's the new person in us. And then he says those words in verse 8, for that very reason, therefore, he who keeps on setting this aside is not setting aside man, we could say human things, but is setting God aside who also gives his Holy Spirit to you guys. So since Paul had earlier used impurity in marriage, let me give an example in which we can set aside something for man-made things. We're getting to have a, a bigger and bigger problem as each year goes by that even the Christians have been infected by it, where kid can go through catechism, Sunday school, and knows better. But then they meet the person they think is the love of their life, so they start living together as if they're married. They share the marriage bed as if they're married. We call it shacking up. And it's, it really breaks your heart when they know better. Well, and, and lots of times you get the excuse, well, we're going to live together to make sure it works out. Now, the irony is secular psychologists have studied this, and they find that people who live together tend to be something like 10 times more likely to get divorced. Do you know why? Because they did not have that idea of commitment in the first place. That's why they were testing each other in the first place. And they also find out that they put their best foot forward to kind of sucker the person into marrying them. And then once they finally do tie the knot, whew, I can let that sinful nature out of his cage. So when we do that, we're saying, I know it's against God's will. And, and embracing man's will, well, Paul says, you're rejecting God. But then he also reminds us, it's God who, and it's, it's, it's that he does it over and over again. He sends the Holy Spirit to us. He sent the Holy Spirit into your heart to create faith. He sends the Holy Spirit over and over again to nourish and sustain that faith using the word. He has given you spiritual and natural gifts, and he sends that Holy Spirit to hone and amplify those gifts so that you use them. And sometimes the Holy Spirit comes in situations, maybe suddenly you know exactly the right thing to say and afterwards, and it's an opportunity to preach Christ and afterwards you go, how did I know that? Well, that was the Holy Spirit working. So, when it's all said and done here in verses 7 through 9, as we ask, or 7 through 8, when we ask the question, how are we to live new lives in a way that pleases God? It's not letting our sinful natures will be done. It's selfish. It's going to look out for what it wants, right? It's letting God's will be done. It's why we pray it in the Lord's Prayer, let thine will be done. I'm going to take verses 9 through 12 pretty much as our last key concept. So he says, Now concerning the brotherly love, you have no need that we write to you. For you yourselves, he even emphasizes it, for you yourselves are God taught with the result that you love one another. Wow. Did God come down and immediately teach the people from Thessalonia? No. He sent Paul and Silas and Timothy. But he's put it in our hearts with the new person as well, and he's given us a conscience. We know what hatred is. We know what love is. And God's word keeps encouraging that. Whenever one of us, whenever you share God's love with the neighbor, 
God is using you to teach them. And so he continues, indeed, you guys are also doing this. That's the brotherly love. A Greek preposition there really is into, but it's bad English. You guys are doing this into all the brothers. Think about that. What he's saying is you're taking God's heart, that's, God's love that's already in your heart, that God's already taught you, and you're injecting it right into your brother and sister in Christ's hearts as well. And then he says, specifically those in all Macedonia, that's modern day Greece, Yet we are strongly encouraging you, dear brothers, to keep on overflowing more and more. Do you hear the beautiful things, the confession Paul's saying? You already have a great reputation for being loving to your brothers and sisters in Christ, not just in Thessalonica, but in all of Macedonia, in the whole region. And yet, we're encouraging you to overflow in it all the more. It takes us back to our first part where we said, never settle for good enough. And so he continues in verse 11, and to keep on being ambitious to live quiet lives and to attend to your own affairs and to work with your own hands just as we gave instructions to you guys so that you guys continue conducting your lives in an appropriate manner towards outsiders and so that you guys have no need of anything. Now, when I served in a small town in South Dakota, lots of times uh, the women in that small town that were members of my church and a few that weren't would come and tell me, you know, Pastor, I have to admit, I really struggle with the sin of gossiping. And in a small town, the gossip can be pretty juicy, right? So sometimes in America today, we tend to think that's women's sins. It was the opposite in Macedonia. The guys, you know, they leave the, the wife and the kids at home to chip the ice and shovel the snow this time of the year. Not that they probably had the problems we have this winter. And then they would go to the city gates where they could get the newest, juiciest gossip. It was the men that were the gossipers. But Paul turns around and says, in any of those cases, live ambitious and quiet lives. Don't be the loud mouth, the town gossipers. Certainly, we want to be there to admonish a brother or sister in Christ when they're falling in sin. But we do that in a way that's not pharisaical. <laughs> I don't struggle with that sin. I'm better than you. And I'm really just chewing you out so that I can look good nor in a way that, that it seems like we're just drawing attention to ourselves. How good I am to fix the rest of you. This is live quiet lives. Yes, we, we look out for our brother or sister in Christ, but we know when it's time to mind our own business. So he says to attend to your own affairs, and he says to work with your own hands just as we gave instructions to you guys so that you guys continue conducting your lives in an appropriate manner towards outsiders and so that you guys have no need of anything. Very interesting as he talks about working with his own hands because lots of times people think the Christian church's whole purpose is to give money to the poor. But you know, they, they said, and Paul says in other epistles, he says, if a man won't work, he shall not eat. If one of us just decided to be lazy and, and depend on the rest of our love, we would be, to, to, to support them, we'd be taking advantage of each other. Now, if one of us was in need and we all said, let me help you, that's a whole different story, isn't it? And in fact, he even talks about that so that you guys have no need of anything. One of the great commentaries, probably it's not meant on this, though, that explains everything, is when we hear about the early Christian church shortly after Pentecost Sunday in the city uh, of Jerusalem, where the Christians, when they saw one of them had a need, turned around, and if they had extra, they sold their property and attended to that need, none of them taking advantage of the other. But ultimately, he also says... Uh, so that yeah, so that you guys continue conducting your lives in appropriate manner towards outsiders. That's those outside the congregation, outside the church. This is unbelievers. When you are overflowing with God's love for each other, and of course that would also overflowing with God's love towards others, outsiders stand back and say, wow, what a neat group. 
And so the last part of our question, how are, are we to live new lives in a way that pleases God is, keep on overflowing with God's love for one another, just as you yourselves are doing. So how are we to live new lives in a way that pleases God? We have that new life because of Christ. First, we always got to remember that motivation. Never settle for good enough while sticking with what you have been taught by the word of God. Show God's purity while living in an impure world. Love your neighbor with godly accountability. Let God's will be done and keep on overflowing with God's love for one another. Amen. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Amen.